going to be in Acts chapter 3. If you remember, if you were here during the summer, I preached a sermon series uh, from Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. Do any of you remember what it was called? It begins, thanks, because I forgot for a second there what it was called. But it begins, and it was about the early life of the church. And, uh, and I told you all that I'm going to do that, and then starting in September, going through May, I will teach at Grow through Acts chapter 3, verse chapter 3 through chapter 15. Probably won't get all the way through the book of Acts. I'll get through chapter 15. It's just a lot there, a lot of stuff to cover. Um, I'm not going to go into a detailed um, intro to the book of Acts, because I covered a lot of it before, but I need to, to bring this up today. I need to, you know, some of you weren't here. I need to give you an intro, kind of go over some things and set the stage for what happens. Acts is an amazing book. Now, in college, I was a history major. I love history. History is important to me. And uh, the book of Acts is a book full of history. It is the most historical history kind of book you find in the New Testament. Um, and it's a lot like what you find in the Old Testament in terms of Samuel and Kings and in those books. It's, it's just, it's got so much there. A guy named Luke wrote it. Luke wrote Luke and Acts together. I'm not going to go through all the reasons why, just something that is generally, it's accepted so much, it's really not even up for debate. Uh, and, and by doing that, he wrote more of the New Testament than anybody, including Paul, in terms of, you know, just pure words. Paul wrote more books. Luke wrote more content overall. Uh, if you believe that Luke wrote the book of Hebrews, as some do, then he wrote a ton of stuff. Um, he was a Gentile, and he wrote these two books to be companion pieces. And the book of Luke tells the story of the life of Jesus. And the book of Acts tells the story of the life of the church. And it's the movement. You see in Acts, you see in Luke, the very, very beginning of Jesus. Back all the way before Jesus to John. And in the, in the birth, of, I mean, the foretelling of the birth of John. And in Luke, you see the very beginning of the church, how it begins and how it moves. He probably finished writing these two books by about 60, 61 A.D., in large part, we know that, I believe that. Those who do believe that, some believe it later. But, you know, he just ends. The book of Acts just kind of ends. Like, you know, it, it's over. You know, Paul, Paul's in Rome. You know, people are coming to Paul, and the book stops. Like, okay, he's finished. Maybe he would have written more circumstances allowed. But probably because that's, he ended about where he was. You know, he looked around and said, okay, I'm up to today. You know, it's, it's 60 AD. You know, it's, you know, June 6th. I'm through, and, and that's where he ended. And, um, but in doing so, there's, you realize there's so much purpose in the book, what, what's trying to be conveyed and what's trying to be shared. Probably, in, in all likelihood, when you, when you come to the book of Acts, what you need to realize is he, he, he's really a masterful storyteller, as any good historian is. Good historians just don't tell the facts. Good historians tell a story. And they tell a story that's true, and they weave the lives of people in and around it. And the book of Acts is woven around the lives of two men, Peter and Paul. The book of Acts is really called the Acts of the Apostles. Now, I know a lot of people like to say, no, it's the, you know, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because what we preachers like to do is get really spiritual and sound like we really, really, really love Jesus, so everything has to be spiritual. Everything in the Bible is the act of the Holy Spirit, okay? If you want to be honest, it all, the Holy Spirit's working through all of that. It's all actually the act of God. So I know the Holy Spirit's working in the book of Acts. He's working through people. So let's just understand that. And, and what's amazing about the book of Acts, I would say, it's like, you remember Push Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the movie, the one with Paul Newman and Robert Redford? And there are two major actors, right? Newman and Redford, it's a good book. It's, it's a good Western. You know, there's some other good Westerns out there. It may not be the best Western, but it's a good Western. 
And there are these two stars, and then there's a bunch of other really good stars around them, you know, a bunch of really good actors and actresses all around them. But they're the two main things. In the book of Acts, there's so many important people. John. I mean, John wrote five books of the Bible, you know. I mean, John was one of the apostles. But, and he's there with Peter at the beginning. But, but he's kind of like a supporting actor. James, the brother of Jesus, so important. I mean, in, in fact, in chapter 15, he takes the limelight a little bit and gives one of the great pronouncements of all time. He's the supporting character. You got in there, you got Philip, the evangelist. You got Stephen. You know, you know, and Stephen, you know, dies in the story. You know, at some point, the John, James, the brother of John, dies in the story. Um, you, you've got Barnabas. You've got all these people. Timothy's on the scene. You've got all of this, but it's the story of two men. And it's the story of how these two men took the gospel and did amazing things with it for all of us to understand. One of them, Peter, is connected so close to Jesus, and the other, Paul, would absolutely hated Jesus. It's two, these guys couldn't be two more different people. Peter's just a good old boy from Galilee, a fisherman. Paul was this brilliant scholar. I mean, Peter, Peter was just impetuous and, and you know, an emotional, could say anything, and Paul is so calculated. And so just thinking things through. To begin in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, we get really the whole blueprint, the whole table of contents. Luke just tells us this is what everything's about. Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to get his power. Then you're going to be my witnesses. Here's what I want you to do. You go to Jerusalem. So you can start there. And then Judea, Samaria will be right there. And then you go through all the world. And the rest of the book of Acts is just fulfilling that. In fact, you can't read the book of Acts and not think about those verses. And what the book of Acts does starts with a guy named Peter in Jerusalem and those supporting cast around him. And it ends with Paul in Rome with the supporting cast around him. And you start in Jerusalem and you get to the center of the world, the city of Rome. It's an amazing story. It's a story that is something else. It's a story that shows us to transition from Christianity being primarily Gentile to primarily, and primarily Jewish to primarily Gentile. Most people miss this. It, we miss this so much in the New Testament. There is a movement where it starts off just being purely Jewish. And when you get to the last book written, book of Revelation, even though John was a Jew in the book of Revelation is couched in Jewish imagery, in language, Revelation was written to a church that had become primarily Gentile at the end of the first century being persecuted. You see that movement of that happening. You see it starting off and then reaching the people with, you know, in Acts chapter 2, as I, I preached, you know, back in, in June and July about the Holy Spirit coming. It was Jewish. They had Jews from all over the world. And, and, and then you begin to see the church growing. And then you begin to see bits and pieces of things happening. For instance, in, in, in chapter 3 through 6, you see conflicts arising in the church. And then you, 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 some of this persecution from, from the Jews, not from the Gentiles, from the Jews. They're rejecting. They're rejecting the gospel. Then you see problems kind of from within in chapter 5 and chapter 6. In chapter 7, an amazing thing happens. Stephen is proclaiming Jesus, and he gets killed by the Jews. They kill him. And then it says, the church began to disperse, and they began to leave, and they began to go off. And then you see Peter 
and the others in supporting caste begin to work with Gentiles. In chapter 8, Philip shares Jesus with an Ethiopian official. In chapter 9, Peter is, I mean, Paul is converted. Paul, this devout Jew, is converted with the purpose of going to the Gentiles. In chapter 10, Peter begins it all by going to the house of a guy named Cornelius. The first Jewish Christian, the first Jew really that we have in Scripture, but it did something rare. A Jew went into the home of a Gentile. An amazing, that is an amazing event. And then slowly but surely, it moves from Peter to Paul. And Paul goes to the Jewish churches in Asia Minor in chapter 13 and 14 and shares the gospel and has some struggles. And then once a decision has been made in chapter 15 that the Gentiles don't have to convert to Judaism, but they are not to make it difficult for them to come to faith, Paul goes to Europe. And when he goes to Europe, you know what happens? He goes to the synagogues, and not every time, but they begin to kick him out in Thessalonica. They run him out of town. Then Berea, they run him out of town then. And so he begins to leave the Jews. Well, he'll always go to the synagogue first, but you see him going to the Gentiles, the Gentiles, the Gentiles. And that's how it ends. And by the way, when Paul gets out of prison in 62 AD, by that time, James, the brother of Jesus, who was the head of the church of Jerusalem, who had a good experience there for the most part, had a good reputation with Jews and Gentiles alike. The pre, we're told from outside sources, Josephus tells us, that the priest killed the brother of Jesus. When they killed the brother of Jesus, it began to crumble that church. I don't know if you realize this or not, but if you look at the books Paul wrote after his imprisonment, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Paul's got nothing about Jerusalem. Oh, and so the other books, he's talking about the offering to Jerusalem. He's got to get back to Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden you read, Paul has nothing to do with Jerusalem. And then in 70 AD, a few years after Paul and Peter died, Jerusalem crumbles. The temple falls. And you may not understand this, but that is significant because the religion of the Jews basically ceased. Without a temple, there is no sacrificial system. Everything about the Jewish faith revolves around that sacrificial system. And the religious system that had replaced the faith that God had given them, the system crumbles. And with it crumbling, Judaism basically in Jerusalem is nothing left. And the Jews scatter throughout the world. And throughout the world, Christianity is primarily Gentile. And when the first century closes, you have a church that is Gentile. And when you read the early church fathers in the second, the third, the fourth century, you don't find much from anybody who's Jewish in the faith. And this is shared with us in the book of Acts, that this is what will happen. And this is how it would go. So you have this amazing book written by a Gentile to people, both Jewish and Gentile, to explain the early life of the church. Now, in chapter 1 and 2, as I shared with you back when I did the series, at the end of certain chapters, there's transitions. By the way, in the chapter 2, there's a transition between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And in the chapter 2, it actually mentions the temple. In fact, at the start of chapter 3, you see them going into the temple. We'll get to just a minute. And the transition at the end of chapter 4, they don't mention the temple anymore because there's so much conflict. And as you move on and on and on, you just see this story unfolding in many ways like that I've shared with you. So we start... In chapter 3. Now this story is interesting. Um, because after the Holy Spirit comes, the first thing you're going to see is a healing. Very similar to what Jesus did. 
Now, chapter 3 and chapter 4 go together. They didn't write in chapters back then. We divide, they go together. Now, in chapter 4, verse 12, Peter and John are before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the guys that killed Jesus. And they're saying, quit preaching about Jesus because that's what he's been doing. And in, in verse 12, Peter says this. He says, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. That's an important verse. When I came in view of a call in March of 2015, I preached from that verse. That verse was my text. The message was called the main thing. And I told you the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. Anywhere I go in view of a call, I did that when I was in Bridgeport. I preached that passage. When I left Bridgeport, after I agreed to come here, the last message I preached to them was from that verse. When I came here and I preached to that verse and I told you the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing, what I said to you is this, that the key to life is salvation. Salvation is the single most important thing there is, and it can only be found in Jesus. If those two things are true, if everyone needs to be saved, and Jesus is the only one who can bring salvation, then the purpose of the church must be to take the message of salvation to people. And I made a promise to you that that would be the single most important thing that I would do during my pastor here, that everything else would fall second, third, fourth, wherever. That would be the primary thing that we do. And oh, by the way, I've kept that promise. And where does that verse come from? What is the basis of that? It's found in these first 10 verses. In fact, when I conclude that message, whenever I do it, I come back and I don't read the first 10 verses, but I tell the story of these verses. And so I'm going to do that over the next 16 minutes. Peter and John were going to the temple. It was the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Ninth hour would be three in the afternoon. It was time for the evening, early evening prayers. And there was a man who had been laying from his mother's womb, who is being carried along, whom they used to sit down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg money of those who were entering the temple. So they're at the temple. Now, where they're at, you know, the temple's this huge, massive complex. and has multiple courts, and one of the courts is called the Court of the Gentiles. And Gentiles could go as far as the Court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go any further, or they could be killed. I mean, they, were, they could kill them for that. The next court was the court of women. That's as far as the women could go. And most likely, the gate beautiful is the gate on the eastern edge, they think, between the Gentiles' court and the women's court. And so they would take this guy, and he'd been crippled all his life, and he would just beg. He would sit there just asking for money. Now, you know, we see this. You know, you drive around town. There are certain spots where people are on the side of the road just begging for money. You know, you get that from here to there. And he would sit there beg, you know, you look at him. I don't know, when I see folks begging for money, I'm like, I don't ever want to look them in the eye. Because the minute you look them in the eye, they think you're going to give them money. So I, I try never to look them in the eye and to say, and I, feel, I, I tell you, I feel bad about it, but I don't. I don't. I just remember what Peter said, silver and gold I don't have. I don't heal them, but, uh, you know, that. But, you know, so you can get the picture of these people just wanting money and begging that was his life. Peter would put it there, the family. It was, it was they did everything they could for him. And a lot of times people go into the temple, would give them money, probably out of guilt, sometimes maybe thinking they could buy something from God by going to the temple. You know, people give for different reasons. I get that. He saw Peter and John about to go into the temple. And he began asking to receive alms. He was begging for money. And Peter, along with John, fixed his glaze on him and said, look at us. So Peter looked at him and said, look this way. Oh, I bet that guy was happy because he was fixing to get some money. He didn't know how much, but Peter's commanding, stare at us. Look, look into my eyes. He's kind of saying, look this way. 
because he wanted this guy's full attention. A lot of times people bag their head down. You know, I've been in Mexico numerous times, especially when I was younger, I lived in Laredo, and we go across, I don't go across now, I go in Laredo, and, and they beg, and they never look at you, they just have their hands out. You know, and I, and I get that, I get that picture. And in Mexico, I would give them money and, and do that. So he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have to you in the name of Jesus, I'll give in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. So I'm not giving you money, but I'm going to give you something better than that. In the name of Jesus, of Nazareth, Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. So what he does, it says, I'm not giving you anything temporal, but I'm going to give you something that'll last. And he does it in the name of, to do something in the name of someone is to do it in the character of. It's, it's the idea of doing it with the authority of. Names are so important. And he says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, in the Nazarene of Nazareth. He was, that's how you were kind of identified back then. They didn't really have last names. Um, <laughs> Jesus' last name is not Christ. <laughs> it's a title. You know, he's Jesus, the Messiah who came from Nazareth. And um, if you needed more, he would be Jesus, son of Joseph. And he gives a command, I want you to walk. I was reading whenever uh, uh, one of my favorite commentators uh, is F.F. Bruce. He's a brilliant, brilliant commentator. And uh, if he says something, it's probably true. People quote him all the time. Other commentators quote him. And he, when he writes about this, he, he talks about an incident. I don't know how true it is. Um, someone else recounts it, but it's probably somewhat true or Bruce wouldn't quote it. Um, Thomas Aquinas was a Catholic theologian scholar, brilliant. Thomas Aquinas came up with the concept of natural theology that impacts even Protestants. He's Catholic, but impacted Protestants in the 1200s. And he's with Pope Innocent. The story says Pope Innocent II, but it couldn't have been second. Second was dead. It had to be Innocent IV. And for, Pope Innocent IV was counting all the money. And he looked at Thomas Aquinas, this brilliant philosopher, brilliant man. And he said, no longer can the church say, silver or gold have I none. And Aquinas looked at him and said, yes, but no longer can we say arise and walk. You know, there's just the priority of our faith matters. The priority of our faith. To change lives. Money is always important, but I say all the time, money is just a tool. I said this last week. I said, you know, I, listen, I don't, I don't worry about the money, you know, in the church life, you know, I like having it. Right now I want it to, so we can build a building. You know, after that, you know, when we build this building, we're not going to have hardly any money around. You know, okay. So, you know, God will provide it. I mean, he, he's, you know, he's going to, you know, we're going to be in debt and all that. Money is just a tool. Our purpose isn't to accumulate money. It always bugs me. When I see churches taking money, I mean, sometimes you're saving to build a building. If you're saving it for a purpose, I got it. But just to have money to have. When I got here, you had so much money. Like, what is this money for? I don't have anything. I said, I'm not giving you my money for you to put in a bank to draw interest. I'll keep it and do that. I give you my money to help people get up and walk. I want you to notice what's happened here. This, this is amazing. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright. He leaped. He jumped. And he began the process of walking. He entered the temple. They went to the temple together, leaping and praising God. The people saw him walking. They were praising God, and they were taking note of him. 
as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. They were marveled. You know, in Mark 2, and in fact, all three of the Gospels, it talks about Jesus healed a paralytic. This is a similar story. But I want you just to picture this for a moment. And I want you to understand what's at stake in here when Peter does this. this there's a, there's a, the Christian, this is, Christi- I've said this many times. Christianity is basically right here at a defining moment early in the life of the church. Peter says, I want you to walk. I bet this guy, just in the split second this occurred, is thinking, are you kidding me? You know how much I've wanted to walk in my life? You don't think I've tried to walk? You don't think when, when I was a little kid and all the other kids were walking, making fun of me, that in the privacy of a child, that I wouldn't just grab a chair and try to pull myself up to see if I could walk only to fall down. Time and time again. You don't think when I looked out the window and saw my brothers and the neighborhoods playing whatever game they made up, that I didn't weep and cry and ask God, why can't I play? That I didn't, I didn't go and try one more time to pull myself up one more time for the thousandth time. And as a teenager, when the boys were being given to the girls and the girls to be given to the boys to know I would never have a wife, never have a companion, never have someone to love me and go through life with me. Don't you think I tried to walk? And in a split second, that goes through his mind. And then Peter does something that is mind-boggling. He did something that Jesus would do when he would touch a leper or an outcast or a dead person. Peter reaches down and takes him by the hand. You see, it could have been very easy for Peter to say, just get up and walk. And if that guy had said, no, I can't, Peter would say, well, you don't have faith. Like so many today do in the lives of people. When they share with him Jesus or they share something and things don't work out, they say, well, you just don't have enough faith. No. Peter understood he probably wasn't going to have enough faith. So Peter did something. Peter got with him and he risked the gospel. Do you understand? When Peter grabbed him by the hand and pulled him up, that guy couldn't walk yet. But when Peter's faith, with this guy's willingness to go along, Pulled him up. It says immediately at that moment when Peter risked it, when Peter took the chance, his feet were strengthened. Could you imagine if Peter pulls him up and he falls right back down? That the gospel of Jesus would all of a sudden become in disrepute and be mocked and scorned. Do you know what Peter risked to do that? He reached down and he picked him up. And that man's life changed. Not because of Peter. Because Jesus worked through Peter. And Peter was obedient. And Peter took a chance to do what no one else would do. And he walked. And then he jumped. And then he ran. And people 
were amazed and praised God because of Jesus. The purpose of the church isn't to heal and it isn't to feed and it's not to social, solve the social problems of the world. It's to help people walk in faith in Christ. Now, to do that, we come alongside them. Yeah. And we'll do ministry with them. And we'll, we'll help them with their needs. Because we want to help them with a bigger need. And if someone's starving, I can't just say, be saved and walk away hungry. The New Testament teaches that's not what Christianity is about. But understand, we're not here to feed them, though we do feed them. But Jesus said you'll always have the poor and the hungry. They'll never leave. We're, we're not here to solve all the social problems, though we want to solve them. We're here to walk alongside people who are struggling with them. I don't feed all the hungry. I feed the one I know who is hungry. I don't solve all the social problems, but I help that one person who's struggling. I help that one. And one by one, I come along the side of lives of people who are struggling, and I put my hand with them, and I get down with them, and I share Jesus with them, and I help them in whatever I can, but I go through life with them. And I risk whatever I have to risk so that they may come to faith. Here is the picture at the very beginning of the church movement of what the believers who make up the church are to do. Not solve all their problems. He didn't give him any money. But he gave him what was more important than that. He gave him Christ. He gave him the ability to walk. But he risked it with him. This is the beauty of the church. This is the beauty of our faith. This is what we do. We come alongside people in their lives. You know people that I don't know, that I'll never reach them. I'll never touch them. Most of the people who come to faith in this church, I had nothing to do with them coming to faith. I don't know them. I don't reach them. They don't come to me. You know them. You reach them. We do those videos, and who do they thank? They never thank me. Just once, I wish somebody would thank me. One stinking time. Hey, man, I want to thank the preacher. His sermon that he did that one Sunday is amazing and changed my life. Never happens. No one's ever said a message or a series or anything I did ever made a difference in their life. My mom, my dad, my wife, my husband, my children, my parents, my friend, my coworker. Never the preacher. You make the difference in their life. I don't come alongside them. I don't reach my hand out. Oh, there are people I do that with. Oh, there are people I know who they could tell their story. They would thank their friend, David. I want to thank the guy I went to high school with. I want to thank the guy I grew up with. I want to thank the guy I met in college. I want to thank this guy I met here or there. But it's never the preacher. It's always you. Salvation, Peter will say, and we'll see this in a couple weeks, is not found in anyone else. 
For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. And oh, you must be saved. So let me ask you this. When's the last time you reached down and took someone's hand and you helped them through life so that they might come to Jesus?